Hello and welcome to our third episode of the podcast that has been up to this point called Casting Across the Pond, but we are now proudly redubbing as Mere Fidelity. That is the crowd favorite and the favorite amongst the interlocutors here. We're, we're renaming the podcast Mere Fidelity, and, and the hope is that these conversations about theology, culture, and the church will encourage a posture of faithfulness in the church amongst those listeners who, you know, pastors, uh, congregants, whoever listens in the particular places that we are at. That's what we want is, is to think orthodox, think biblically, think um, patiently in the midst of a culture that presents all kinds of interesting uh, hopes and challenges and joys and stresses. And, and so hopefully what, what happens here encourages faithfulness to God, his word, and, and to our call as the church in the world. And so Mere Fidelity is, is the name of the podcast from now on. Uh, with that, though, today uh, we will be having a guest with us who hasn't been on the last couple of times. Uh, there will be me, Derek, the usual, um, Alistair Roberts, Andrew Wilson. But today we'll also be joined by Matt Lee Anderson, Matthew Lee Anderson, the lead writer for Mere Orthodoxy, author of a couple of books, which I'm sure you've all read, and uh, all around very, very smart guy. Matt, why don't you say hi? Uh, hey, thanks, guys, for letting me join. I've, I've been honored to have you all at Mere O, and am very excited to come and play. All right, well, then uh, let's get to playing. Today's conversation uh, piece is a question that I asked. I'm going to be go ahead and be uh, unabashedly self-referential, as Andrew put it earlier, uh, is there such a thing as moral orthodoxy? We've talked about orthodoxy before. You know, we, we've talked about how the church has a standard of theological orthodoxy as enshrined in creeds like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian definition, and various confessional uh, definitions. And so more uh, theological orthodoxy is pretty fairly um, graspable as a concept, are you a Trinitarian believer? Do you affirm the resurrection of Christ? Uh, justification, well, yeah, well, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll fudge that one. But in any case, um, <laughs> is there a corresponding standard when it comes to the, the Bible's moral teaching? Because we have these, these conversations recently about, especially in contemporary evangelical uh, discussions about sexuality, marriage, and, and specifically the moral permissibility of same-sex or romantic relationships. And so, some people have said, well, no, this is a gospel issue. This is an orthodoxy issue. And some people have said, well, are you, you going to call me a resurrection-affirming, trinity-worshipping, Bible-believing Christian, a heretic, because I don't affirm the traditional position or, or because I have a different position on same-sex marriage? And so the question then becomes, well, is there a corresponding moral orthodoxy of sorts where... Um, uh, in other words, is this just an adiaphora issue, a uh, uh, agree to disagree issue in the church, like like speaking in tongues or, or various kinds of baptism or I don't know, whatever you consider an adiaphora issue, uh, types of pale ales? Um, I, I think, I mean, personally, I think pale ales are sad excuses for IPAs, but but that's an adiaphora issue. I won't judge you too hard for it. Um, the question then is, is, is same-sex marriage, uh, is that an adiaphora issue or is that heresy or is there some other category we're missing here. And so that's the question we want to talk about today. And at this point, I want to turn it over to uh, the rest of the guys. And actually, Matt, you're our guest. Why don't you just go ahead and go first? 
weigh in. Oh, thanks for that. I appreciate it. Um, the sending the, <laughs> the lamb up for the slaughter, as it were. Um, well, well, look, I mean, there, I have two thoughts on this. One, it's very easy to associate the claim that someone is a heretic for taking a, a different position on same-sex relationships. It's, it's very easy to associate that charge with, say, conservative evangelicals in the United States. Um, uh, who seem to be pretty quick on the trigger uh, when it comes to heresy charges these days. Yeah. Um, but the fact is, Wolfhart Pannenberg wrote a great essay in the early 90s called The Heresy of Homosexuality, where he basically walked through the argument and said, uh, you know, what's at stake here in this issue is a kind of biblical faithfulness, and any church that gets it wrong has become apostate. Um, now, Whatever you make of theological credentials and so on and so forth, Wolfhart Vandenberg just isn't your typical North American fundamentalist <laughs> event. Right, right. Like he's just not playing in the same game. So yeah, him, him, and, him and Falwell just hanging out. Yeah, they're not. That's not. That's not what's going <laughs> down. Um, so there's a little bit more. Given that someone that's totally outside of the, the evangelical context is, has in the past made this sort of claim. I think there's there's something serious about it that we ought to to listen to and consider. I think the other thing is orthodoxy as a matter of belief uh, and as a matter of uh, participation in a set of beliefs, as it were, and in a community that affirms a set of beliefs, is a really thick concept. There's a uh, Austin Farr, uh, one of my favorite theologians is a great line where he says something like anyone who does not pray the creeds doesn't deserve them. Um, you have to pray your creeds in order to, to earn them as it were. And I think if there is a moral orthodoxy, something uh, that is something equivalent would be true of it. Anyone who doesn't live out the moral orthodoxy hasn't in one sense earned the right to uh, lay down those boundaries. And that, I think, is really damning on those communities that do want to shout more orthodoxy on, on this sort of issue, because it's not obvious to me that once we start delineating which practices are in and which practices are out with respect to moral orthodoxy, that we have ourselves been consistent. If you look at, for instance, contraception, the widespread evangelical acceptance of contraception is historically an anomaly with respect to ethics. Um, and it's represented a pretty severe break with uh, other cr Christian traditions. And so when it comes to claims of orthodoxy, I think that moral orthodoxy, I think that we have to be really introspective and if we're going to deploy this sort of vocabulary, make sure that what, what is good for the goose is also good for the gander, that we are being deeply consistent in our use of it. So judgment then begins in our room of the house of God. Is that, is that what you're saying? Well, like, if you want to say what I said in like 10 words, fine. Yes. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, boys, any, anybody else? I, I, think that's a, I think that particular point is is so helpful because of the potential hostages to fortune you open yourself up to when you start pronouncing on on orthodoxy in the light of things that were not stated or or included within creedal formulations and obviously i think it's absolutely true i, I agree with pannenberg and i agree that the uh 
the way that the early creeds were formed is obviously nobody was talking about it because everybody agreed on, on sexual ethics and so on. But I wonder if, you know, I, I, I suppose two things occur to me when you think about the question of moral orthodoxy with respect to sexuality and anything else. Off the back of what Matt's just said, I mean, one of the things that didn't occur to me but is really important is are you sure that you like where this is going and what else might be included if you went to appeal to a church historical consensus on ethics in a way you don't on necessarily all aspects of doctrine? Um, and obviously there's all the questions about orthodoxy and heresy about the Reformation, and that, that is in itself a heretical moment and all that sort of thing. Um, so you have to be careful about what, what you are when you throw that label around. And yeah. I it was strange even just in these last few days to have lots of discussions, you know, people who are high-profile proponents of gay marriage at the same time being told that they're heretics for using a, the word she of God in a blog post somewhere. And you think it, it's just funny that the sort of straining out gnats and swallowing camels that can happen when you start putting the H word involved. And, and I just I think we have to be a little bit careful about what we would open ourselves up to, as Matt's just been saying, if we use that word rigorously and consistently. I think the two things that occur to me about in, in a more constructive way, the first thing is why are people asking the question, is this heresy or is this orthodoxy? Because I think behind it, I think you made a point a bit like this in your original post, Eric, that, that there's almost an assumption that a bifurcation is possible between things which are heretical or orthodox on one extreme, and if it's not heretical, then it really doesn't matter very much, and that we need a, a middle category. I think that was your, your, and I think you gave a couple of suggestions as to how to go forward with that. And for me, I think that the, the question of motive is important as to why are we trying to define whether this issue is heretical or not. And I think it might be because we think that's the only way we can say, look, guys, this really, really matters, and it might well involve in eternal judgment for people if you get it wrong. And I think that, for me, would be a significant question to ask. It, why, why has that become a debate? Is it because we think that if we say, if we don't use the H word, we are therefore saying, to be honest, this isn't a very big issue. It's, it's like infant baptism or whatever that you can disagree about. And the yeah. second more constructive thing I'd say, and I think I'd love to, I mean, Derek, you made a good point, so I won't stick with thunder on the Old Testament side of it. I actually think yeah. if, they, if you're looking for some sort of moral, moral framework, though, in the, in the New Testament, I think you do have the vice lists, which are common and mutually reinforcing and repeatedly saying the same sort of thing. And the example that occurred to me recently was to take it away from sexuality. It, the creeds don't say anything at all about worshipping idols, but I think it's extremely clear that embedded within the theology of the creeds is the idea that you don't bow down to statues and worship them. But it doesn't denounce idolatry in the form of that, uh, the, the major ecumenical creeds because there's no need. Everybody knows that that's off the table. And it's because it would be in things like the vice lists in the New Testament to be that nobody would even think to entertain that as an idea. It doesn't say you can't commit adultery in the creeds, but you still know that. It doesn't say that you can't even things like being greedy and uh, swindling and cheating and those sorts of things, you think that's so obvious because I think these vice lists were so common and circulating in the early church and they reinforce each other in Revelation and the Pauline letters and, 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 and other letters as well. So I think I would start there, but I know Derek's also got a better idea which goes back even further than that. But I think if, if you're saying something that's in the vice list which is explicitly said by various people to say, if you do this, you won't inherit the kingdom and you'll be judged and you'll probably go to hell and whatever that then looks like, if you, if you then start saying to people, oh, by the way, we now think that's fine, I think you're on such thin ice that you may or may not call it heresy, but it's a massive problem anyway. Yeah, and that, that language, oh, and Alistair, um, I was going to switch the question, but hey, did you have an initial volley there you wanted to weigh in? Yes, I have a few, two key thoughts. The first is that we need to recognize the importance of the third article of the creed, um, the importance of the role of the Holy Spirit, the church, okay and what it means to have a life together in conformity to God's will as the church. And 
on some level or other, we have to have a description of what this actually looks like, what it looks like to be conformed to the pattern of Christ, how it, the work of Christ touches upon the heart of our moral agency and all these sorts of aspects. Secondly, I think that Oliver O'Donovan makes the important point about the repositioning of the liberal tradition on the front of um, moral concepts and Christian orthodoxy. So traditionally, the liberal tradition focused upon the importance of morality and ethics and how that took priority over the unity of the church on the basis of doctrine and would complain that we're arguing about issues of the Trinity when we should be focusing upon social justice, this sort of thing. Whereas now that position has switched somewhat and we're told that the Christian church finds its unity on the basis solely of creedal unity and not on moral unity and moral differences can and must be accommodated. And this is an important switch because on both sides there is a split between doctrine and orthodoxy and moral practice. And it's that split, I think, that's important because it happens on both sides of this debate. There's a fragmentation of our moral practice and a failure to integrate it into a fuller understanding of the gospel. So in light of that, I think that our moral practice becomes legalistic based upon nitty gritty aspects of law rather than integrated into a holistic understanding of what the gospel entails for our lives shaped in the form of Christ. And I think that's an issue that we need to get at. If we're going to talk about moral orthodoxy, it has to be something that's integrated into our understanding of the gospel and the work of Christ. That, that you raise a the point there when it comes to liberal tradition um, that, that I was thinking about with respect to, say, post-evangelicals who phrase the question this way, like, are you going to call me a heretic? And just as a caveat here, um, we're not discussing whether or not someone's uh, saved or, or not, whether or not they affirm or, or deny this position. We're just talking about theologically the category of teaching in a sense. At least that's that's what I am. But there's there's a funny thing where people are making the liberalizing move out of the evangelical tradition. We've been so shaped by the modernist fundamentalist controversies of about 80 years ago that in a sense they've learned the lesson well in terms of Oh, the Trinity, the resurrection, those are, that, that, that's fundamental, that's core. Uh, Paul hangs the faith on the resurrection. Um, but we've bought that dichotomy where it's like, okay, well, ethics, whatever, but doctrine, that's where it is. Uh, and I just thought that was interesting, the way that shapes some of these conversations is, is um, well, we, we're all buying what we learned in the 1920s controversies, and then we're carrying that forward into into the new ones and that's just kind of an interesting shared presupposition yeah it's a, it's a really important the other question and this is where I'm, I'm kind of pushing forward again on my articles is the third term the third category in a sense and this is where i'm wondering because part of me i i, I was asking the question because i'm not really sure i want to call somebody who believes in the trinity and affirms resurrection and, and is you know for most part orthodox theologically on those things i'm not sure i want to call him a heretic for their position on same-sex marriage. But is that waffling on my part that there's a category in my mind of, man, I, there's no way I'm letting you up in my pulpit. And at the same time, I'm not going to anathema you. I'm not going to excommunicate you. Maybe that's just a, that's, that's not an option. Uh, but, but that kind of like that middle category of really, really serious theological error. And that's where I'm just wondering what you guys think about, is there that kind of like third thing in between Adiaphora and, and full-blown heresy? Um, 
Well, so so look, my my intuitions on this. Um, I mean, I I certainly understand you not wanting to pronounce someone a heretic, but I actually think there's more to uh, the discussion about that than you realize. I mean, heretic as it's being tossed about these days is a it's supposed to be a pronouncement by an ecclesiastical institution, you know, as a kind of judgment about someone's. Uh, state with respect to the ecclesiastical institution and the practices that that ecclesiastical institution lives by. And and so it's meant to be authoritative such that I don't feel like I've got the authority and never have felt like I've had the authority to, in fact, make those sort of pronouncements on someone else. Um, so there's, there's that that I think is going on. Um, but I also think, uh, back to something that Andrew said, uh, that it relates to this, the explosive nature of the term heretic in one sense shuts down any kind of conversation and it shuts down any kind of learning by those who use it. Mm-hmm. And to me, I worry that the rush to use it, the, the lack of some kind of you know grave issue, this third category, whatever it is, the rush to use heresy actually uh, precludes conservatives from learning what's fundamentally at stake in this issue, uh, such that we could actually make a real decision about whether or not it, it, uh, getting it wrong is in fact heretical or not. Is there something about the doctrine of God and our understanding of God that is in fact at stake in the church's position on same-sex marriages? Um, if you if you pronounce it heresy because you read your Bible and you see these six passages and and you think well they've come around to this position so it's clearly subbiblical and and it's impinging on the doctrine of the Bible I don't think that you've actually really fully understood what's at stake there and in one sense the heresy charge cuts off your own learning too early so so in a sense because it's like the quick well sub-biblical there for heresy, like just straight up, it's a denial of inerrancy or something like that. Um, we we don't press forward into, no, no, what's more fundamentally at, at stake? I mean, that's, that's what I hear you saying. Is, is that just another unfair shortening of what you just said? <laughs> Not unfair. You're just better at saying things uh, very quickly than I am. Uh, it's okay. That's why you write whole books and I write blogs. Um, LAUGHTER and people read those, uh, the, the books, that is. Any <laughs> uh, uh, guys, Andrew, isn't, isn't, the, isn't one of the, I mean, the question I'm, I was asking a few minutes ago is, like, why do we want to know? Why do we want to know whether this word is appropriate? And I, I wonder if in the light of this sort of ecclesial dimension of what heresy is and has been considered to be in the past, if one of the things that's going on is the Internet is effectively causing us to function as an enormous parachurch organization without local church structures and yeah. accountable government and all sorts of things, which means that people are on what, Matt's point, which is people are as individuals declaring other individuals to be heretics, whether or not, I mean, it's, and in some cases that's true, of course, it's true to say that Arius was a heretic, and I don't have, the fact that I'm an individual doesn't mean I can't say that, but I'm saying it in reinforcement of a declaration that was already made by a group of people that I completely believe had the right to say it. And so there's the sort of there's the individualism of that pronouncement, and also just the sort of doctrinal vagueness of the boundaries about which I can say it because I'm not speaking for anybody other than myself um, and therefore using heresy in probably the slightly looser sense which is what's tempting to do which is this is not just sub-biblical but this is deviant from what the church has usually believed which works for same-sex marriage 
wonders, but it might well also leave us in trouble with contraception and, for that matter, justification by faith alone and lots of other things. So yeah. I think at both levels, the, the idea of me as an individual wanting to clarify, is this heresy? Is that the word? Can I use that word or, or not? I sort of, why do I want that word? And even if I want another word, like a, a shorthand, you know, find, we find a great Greek word that fits really well for serious theological error that isn't heresy. Even why do I want that word? And I think you hinted at it, Derek, when you said, Period. I want to, this yeah. is a word for somebody who I wouldn't have come and preach in my church and wouldn't want people in my church to get involved in their theology as a pastor or whatever. I would think that was going to be bad for them. And I think as soon as we start talking in that language, we've got a much better framework for dealing with the issue, which is, so for me, does it, does it matter whether some of the people we are alluding to in this conversation are heretics, really bad theological error people, or, or n- neither? And I think the, only, the time it matters is when I'm looking to protect a group of people for whom I am pastorally responsible from teaching that I think will damage them. And so for me, the issue of same-sex marriage is one of those ones because it, it could affect somebody's eternal destiny. So I think that's a massive issue to major on, but it's not something I necessarily need the label that the church historians have usually used for such a thing. So I, I just wonder if we, start, if we limit it down from the massive parachurch that is blogging, tweeting, and the internet, and start turning into what do I need it for in my world and in my church? I think it might become a little bit clearer the categories we ought to be using, and there you have heretics, and you have false teachers, and you have guys who need a bit of correction, and you have people who should be kicked out of the church for some things, and you have people who shouldn't and be included, but just confronted and loved in the other. I think that might be a slightly more New Testamenty way of trying to handle the question. But the, the false teacher language is one thing. And there's the fact that somebody believes false teaching, but isn't a false teacher. I mean, there's a, per, there's a person in yeah. your who's just like, uh, you're technically a modalist. I'm just going to be honest here. Or you're an Aryan. You're not trying to teach people this. So let's correct you. But because um, every, every pastor's had that like, well, that's, that's not, that's not even close to right. You know, that, ra- that raises really hard questions, though, Derek, around moral orthodoxy, because you do have these categories as well, where um, there are lots of people who are not same-sex attracted, who are um, not engaging in any acts, which uh, we would all, I think, on this in this discussion agree that the Bible would uh, be opposed to. But they're yeah. advocating and they're teaching and they're so, you know, they're, they're, yeah. they're advocates yeah. for these positions. And yeah. there it's actually more difficult. And Andrew, I'd be curious to hear sort of how you resolve those sorts of situations and what kind of language you'd use around that. Well, yeah, within, the, within the church. Well, this is, this is the issue, isn't it? So I'm, my friend showed me a transcript of the interview with Rob Bell that I did um, because he laughed so much about it and so did I when I saw it. <laughs> and what had happened was that Rob Bell, towards the end of the interview, when we, I was obviously pushing back hard on his view and asking lots of questions and he was saying something that I thought was completely wrong and if taken seriously by people in my church could lead them to embrace lifestyles that, that mean that you know, several texts say you don't inherit the kingdom if you behave this way. So I'm thinking this is a big issue. But Rob at one point then said, well, the thing is, we're both brothers, and if you broke out the bread and the wine, Andrew and I would both take it. And I made a noise, that, by which I meant, yes, I would, but it apparently was then transcribed by some American guy somewhere. It just said, Wilson, colon, brackets, incomprehensible, close brackets, and made it look like <laughs> I sort of expostulated with rage about the idea of this happening. Um, and so my friend was just in hysterics and showed me, and I thought it was really funny. And actually, to me, that, that really did, it became quite a, a significant moment, because when somebody says something like that to you in the moment, you're saying... I'm looking at him thinking, I think you're a brother. I just think you're very wrong. But I also think some of the things you're teaching could lead somebody to be disinherited if they ever were inherited from the kingdom. Uh, d- leaving aside your perseverance of the saints doctrine for a moment and just saying, 
if 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5 are about anything, they're about people doing this sort of thing and not therefore inheriting the kingdom. But you're not doing it, Rob, so how do, what categories are used for that? And I think at that point I'd say this is where I'd say this is seriously bad teaching, it's seriously false teaching, whether I use the label false teacher of you or not is I have a separate question on the basis of what you think the word means, but but I don't need to use the word heretic, I don't need that, I'd be just prepared to say to my church, this is totally wrong, and if you embrace this, these are the consequences of that, and actually none of them do. So th- I think that's how I handle it in a local church setting. I, I don't feel so desperate for the label to apply to somebody like Rob or Steve Chalk or anybody else with whom I've had these discussions, because... I'm not sure that in the wider echo chamber of the internet, that's really my problem. I do need my church, however, to know this is a line you must not cross. It's not something about which we can agree to disagree. Matt's point about the role that um, time and process plays into this is very important because heresy is not a word that you throw around immediately. It's It's not a word that starts the conversation. It's a word that ends the conversation. And there needs to have been a process of discernment taking place before the term is used. It's the term, the term is used almost as a sentence upon the person, a declaration that this is the state of affairs and there's no resolving it. And until that point has been reached, I think it's premature to use it. Unfortunately, it's a word that in the fast-paced world of the internet, we're prone to throw around quite lightly, whereas I believe it should be applied by a proper body and it's about the person's relationship with the teaching of the church and how they posture themselves in relationship to that so someone can be wrong in their beliefs but not a heretic because they're not opposing the teaching of the church they're submitting to it and they're willing to be taught that's a different sort of relationship I don't think that that amounts to heresy I think there are many um, grandmothers in the pews who are technically severely wrong in their doctrine of the trinity yet they're submitted to the church's teaching and they're not heretics on that level. Someone who is a heretic is someone who culpably opposes and knowingly opposes the teaching of the church and will not turn back from that position. And then the other point that I'd want to make is that when we're talking about this division into essential and non-essential issues, we need to maybe move beyond the picture that we commonly have of a sort of circle around certain core issues and all the ones that fall outside of that are a game to disagree upon whereas i believe the a more helpful way of thinking about christian truth is as an integrated system of thought and so the important question to ask of any particular issue is where does it stand in relationship to other issues so same-sex marriage taken by itself look narrowly at that one issue it seems a small issue The important thing is that it touches on a number of core issues in dangerous ways and if followed to its conclusions would lead to a compromising of those. Now as we play out that process of discernment and um, investigation and interrogation of people's beliefs, I believe we'll find that many people when they see the consequences of the, the belief will step back and say no I don't mean to go there, I will have to abandon this belief to maintain what is central. On the other hand, many will pursue that error into the very core of Christian doctrine and reframe Christian doctrine around that error. And that's where I think we need to start using the term heresy, but not until then. Alistair, you're sounding really systematic and Calvinist-y. I don't know if we can have that around these parts. Sorry. Um, You know, integrated systems of truth, like God's truth is all one and it makes sense. Come on. That point you made about 
whether or not they're willing to follow it out. I've actually seen this and this, I've talked about trajectory before. I've seen this in my own trajectory in a sense, who I was and what I thought at about seven years about, you know, my, my theology of scripture, things like that. Um, there have been times where I've been starting to embrace a position that if you'd have frozen me at that moment, um, right now I'd be, I'd be worried about me. But there, there was this element of when I started to see where it was going, like, oh man, if I buy this, this goes here, I'm not going to go there. Like that, that, that is, that is a bridge too far. And so you start accepting the corollaries again and you start pulling back. And I think that personal trajectory and history uh, element comes into play on pronouncing judgment on specific people expounding a teaching in a sense. One thing, and I'm not sure we have time to pursue it, um, that also I start to wonder about in this is what do you do with it? And this comes up for us as, as bloggers and writers and such is, and this is so much of the context we're talking about is, is people who aren't actually submitted to any church authority and so forth is, is you have, especially in like kind of free range evangelicalism and actually just the way in general churches are now, you have so many people who like the, the concept of being in opposition to uh, church authority or sitting in the pews and, and, and being willing to submit to correction. That's just out the window. In which case, well, how do you deal with somebody who's teaching and, 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 uh, or, or holding beliefs that has, they just, they aren't functionally in any kind of church setting. Um, I don't know if that's too, too, too long of a, a thing to pursue here, but, um, that's well, yeah. Here, let, so let me say this and, and follow up to, to Alistair, cause I think Alistair's made a really good point. I think one of the, the, the central questions that I have is whether we will have the patience on this issue mm. to allow that, um, to allow the disclosure of how these things uh, unfold into the, the rest of Christian doctrine so that we can see their true character and better understand the nature of our own doctrine uh, as, you know, we would say Bible-believing Christians. If we don't have that patience, if, if, if we play the heresy card too early, then we actually don't allow that unfolding properly. And I think what we're going to see is sides being cemented prematurely um, on these issues. And that will actually make people coming back to traditional orthodoxy, I think, more difficult. So that the heresy judgment in one sense, best of intentions, but potentially deeply counterproductive if yeah. applied too, too soon or in the wrong way. It, it hard it reactively hardens people sometimes that I've seen, and you embrace this element of, well, yeah, fine, I am a heretic and a rebel, and let me get a T-shirt about myself, or I don't know, like there's this element of owning that that identity, and then and then actually radicalizing on a whole host of other issues um, that they would. I think many of the points that we made in an earlier podcast about saying that people worship a different god apply in this particular case as well. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, with that, I just got to say here, I, I think we're closing into the time mark. Or we might have already pushed past it. Uh, any final remarks from, from you guys? Uh, Andrew, do you have a last word? Yeah, I, I, I just would love to know in 10 seconds, in a direct length answer, Matt, when you say, do we have the patience to wait? What, 
in the meantime, what's the status of the language you use about it? You, I think someone asked me that. I'm just curious to know how you, what's the language you would use of this kind of issue in while waiting for the fallout to be seen. Uh, what language I would use personally? Yeah. Um, I think that this is an issue on which uh, our knowledge of God as creator and our knowledge of... Um, yeah, I, our knowledge of God as creator stands or falls. Hmm. Okay. That was very good. That was very Derek-ish. Well, okay. So <laughs> is, am I now, do I now stand for short, pithy, and not turn into a book length? Is that I what think, I think Derek-ish should become a word, and I also <laughs> think it's a town in North Africa as well. Just all the, all the issues, anything we ish in this podcast <laughs> Reformed-ish, Derek-ish, okay. Um, and I think Alistairify, maybe, no? Um, that, that's, that's a bit too far. Uh, well, I think at that point, we're probably going to go ahead and uh, wrap this one up. We could go on. It's a great discussion, uh, but we'll, we'll just leave you wanting more uh, for the next episode. So uh, that's it for today on this episode of Mere Fidelity. Um, we want to thank you for joining. Uh, thank you for listening in, and please uh, get the word out share the link. If you think what we're doing here is valuable, uh, the iTunes stream should be going up soon. So we'll let you know when that happens and you can subscribe and, and not miss an episode. Uh, and all these things, we wish you God's grace and peace.